Well, welcome, folks. Oh, is it time yet? Oh, it's only twelve fifty-nine. We got to wait. A, we got to wait a minute. We don't want to be off. Well, welcome everyone. Not having any announcements today, we'll go straight to the call to worship. Our call to worship today is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Lord, our God and Father, as we open this service, Lord, we want to make sure that you are exalted and placarded above all that you would be glorified, Lord God, in the praises of your people. We know that you are awesome and wonderful and all-powerful, Lord God, and we are so small. But at the same time, in our worship of you, Lord God, we find our meaning, our identity, and our context, that you are our God and we are your people. And so we thank you for this opportunity to come together before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, for those that are comfortable standing, uh, please rise and we will sing number two in your hymnal, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
Together, Christians, let us confess our faith through the instrumentality of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our responsive reading today will be from Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul, a mictum of David. I'll read uh, every other verse and we'll repeat every other verse together. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Questions of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 63. What are the special privileges of the visible church? The visible church has the privilege of being under God's special care and government of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies and of adjoining the communion of the saints, the ordinary means of salvation, the offers of grace by Christ to all members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whosoever believes in him shall be saved and excluding none that will come to him. Question 64. What is the invisible church? The invisible church is the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. Question 65. What special benefits do the members of the invisible church enjoy by Christ? The members of the invisible church by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. 
Question 66. What is that union which the elect have with Christ? The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably, joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. Now, as many of you know, in a liturgical church, these things that we do are not arbitrary or made up by men, but many aspects of this service are things that have been done in the church for 2,000 years, and before that, we're instructed in the Bible to do these things. So when we confess our faith together, we confess our faith one to another and to the world, that's why we use the instrumentality of the Apostles' Creed, which is just a simple statement of what it is that Christians believe in as abbreviated a form as possible. And yet some of the words in it can be a little confusing, like the word Catholic, by which we do not mean Roman Catholic, but we mean the real and true believing church at all times and in all places. And with that, we also have a time of confession, not where we would go into a box and confess our sins to any human being, but so that we can move through the rest of the service with our conscience unencumbered, we pause to confess to the Lord and him alone our personal and private sins. And in all of these things, we also confess to the Lord corporately our sin. Christian, do you believe that you have sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. And do you believe that you too have fallen short of the glory of God? We do. Then I simply declare what the scriptures declare to you, that if you have rested on the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, denying any of your own, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your sins are forgiven And you are reconciled to your God. Lord God, our Father, at this time we also want to remember the prayers of this particular church, this particular body of believers. We want to bring before you Ava Roten, Peggy Ford, John Ford, Ryan Paris, Luann Paris, Billy Paris. We want to remember Helen McBride, Jeanette And so many others, Lord God, we just want to continue to pray for these, Lord God, that you would intercede on their behalf and bring about the healing of their bodies in Jesus' name. I want to continue to pray for Mike Perkins, Lord God, in regard to his medications and his interactions with his doctors, that these would be beneficial and toward his healing and well-being. We want to pray for Pam Puckett's sister and her need for care, that you would just look out for her and bring about the right situation for her well-being. We continue to pray, Lord God, for all of our number that are in residential care or that are in retirement or that are in assisted living facilities, that you would just be specially with them during this time, Lord God, as they're separated from loved ones and from the visitation of those that care about them. We pray that you would just give them that special knowledge of your presence and your power in their lives at this time. We continue to pray, Lord God, for our nation. For all of the troubles that we see, Lord God, we know that you are the only cure for these things. And so we pray that you would bring us true justice and peace in the land, Lord God. 
Not the kind of justice that the world seeks after, Lord God, but the kind that you bring. We also pray, Lord God, for our president and for all presidents and princes and kings and those in positions of power and authority, that they would lead according to your royal law so that we might have hope in the land. We also pray, Lord God, for your church here and around the world, knowing, Lord God, that only salvation comes through the work of your spirit and not the mere administrations of men or pastors or visible churches, but that you might grant them faith and belief so that they might have grace and peace in you. And we pray these things, praying the prayer that your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, we have another song in your bulletin handout.
Now, in coming back to our text today, which is Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, we'll read that first verse again. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones. Let's stop there. Lord, our God and Father, you give this great gift to us of your word, which shines into our souls and brings us life, Lord God. Even our salvation is administrated through the words of this text, which were written, Lord God, by your hand through your intermediaries, the apostles and the prophets, so that what we have before us is the very words of our very God. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, that we even have in this minuscule way the ability to apprehend the very mind of God written down in Scripture. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see these things and that you would write our hearts in such a way as that we are willing to receive your word. We thank you for these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, of course, we do get into some disputed territory in here. As you all know, this is a Presbyterian church, and we're of a specific theological lineage coming from the Reformation, and so the interpretations of this text have been predecided for us by people far better than we, certainly far better than I. And yet at the same time, we do get to this interesting word there, put on then as God's chosen. Now, many of you know from previous study that the Greek word here is elect, and this is an election year, and so we're all very uh, you know, uh, catalyzed upon the idea that we get to choose, right? It's time to choose, and hopefully you've all been in church long enough to know how to choose, but that's a different sermon. But chosen ones, and the issue is chosen by who? Let's take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 3, we get to a powerful set of text here that has a very direct answer to these kind of questions, but it's not the answer that people usually like. People usually like some kind of answer that gives glory to man and to our wonderful manifestability to guide our own ship and be the captain of our own destiny. But does Scripture give us that out? From verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he talks about what the spiritual blessing is. Even as he chose us in him. Now one of the things, I'm just going to go ahead and pretty much read the entire passage we're going to read through the chapters just so we get a sense of the historical flow of it. Because here, Paul is more doing systematic theology than he's doing mere doxology. He's teaching us something in a very forthfront way that lays in the latent form all the way through Scripture, which is that the God that created us also has universal dominion over his creation. And what I want you to pay attention to is pronouns. Pronouns, because there's going to be a powerful lot of he, him, and his. Him talking about himself and the things that he does and how he does it and why he does it. So that he's going to explain the whole Bible in this first chapter, but he's not going to give us a lot of glory, which we might see as an error in the text. I'm just kidding. <laughs> when we come to the text, we tend to look for our own opportunity to glorify ourselves in the text and to have some aspect of our salvation be contingent upon our goodness or our intellect. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
So one of the first things that we notice is that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world was laid and that it was not because of our holiness and blamelessness, but for the purpose of our holiness and blamelessness. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, the beloved meaning Christ. In him, we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. It's a powerful lot of pronouns. And they're all referring to the source and well-being of our salvation as not resting in ourselves, but resting in him and his purpose and his glory. And not only that, but he says that it's according to his wisdom and insight. So he even takes that away from us. And he says that it's the mystery of his will. Now, when we talk about these subjects, it's very important that we get this. There are mysteries involved here. And by mysteries, sometimes mysteries are only mysteries until God reveals them to us. And sometimes mysteries stay mysterious even after God reveals them to us. If you want some examples, think about the doctrine of the Trinity. How many of us really get it? Now, I know it's been revealed to us. To a certain degree, we get it. There's one God, and he's manifested himself. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's not three gods there's one God. There are, is not one person. There are three persons. But do we really understand how it all works or has it simply been revealed to us ever is there going to be some aspect of mystery involved there? At the same time, the hypostatic union, which is a fun word to throw around to your theological friends, your hypostatic union is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time with no confusion of the two. And so we can know that it's true. To say that we really understand exactly how it all works would be to push too far. It's been revealed to us in Scripture. At the same time, there is no contradiction. Even in the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not a paradox and it's not a contradiction because we didn't say there's one God that's really three gods. That would be a contradiction. That would be a problem for our faith. But that the one God exists eternally in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Father created the universe and he did through, through the Son to the manifestation of the Spirit, and that even in our salvation, the Father and the Spirit did not die on the cross, but only the Son died. And yet at the same time, in our salvation, it's the Holy Spirit that works salvation in us, not directly the Father, and yet they all work together toward the end of our salvation and their glory. So there are these things that are mysterious, and one of them is this doctrine. When we think back to the great philosophers and the great thinkers of all history, we do get back to certain ideas that have always been a problem for human beings. One of the biggest is, did the universe have a beginning or was it always? Even when you read Plato and Aristotle and they refer back to Socrates, they're all talking about the beginning of things and the nature of God. And, and so they had this big debate. You know, did the universe have a beginning or was it always? And Aristotle's answer tended to be, well, you know, if there's all these things, eventually you're going to have to get back to one uncaused being, which is God, right? Not necessarily our God, but he had in mind the basic principle that the universe had to have a beginning. And yet it's mysterious. And we see scripture saying, yeah, of course the universe had a beginning. God created all things from nothing by the power of his all-powerful word. 
And so the Bible sometimes answers these conundrums that if he did not answer them in Scripture would be very difficult to impossible for the human mind to impose upon the world, right? And then we get to this other issue, the relationship between determinism and free will. Determinism and free will. This is another conundrum because we fully apprehend ourselves as being free and freely making decisions between this thing and that thing and the other thing. And yet at the same time, everything seems to be determined because there are previous causes to all of these things. I mean, the fact that you're here today in this church listening to this sermon, it's not all chance and accident. You purposely came here. You were probably born somewhere around here, and yet at the same time, you were born in a specific place at a specific time. If your big goal in life was to play basketball for the Lakers, you were probably physically precluded from that outcome, right? You were a certain height, you were a certain weight, you had certain powers, certain abilities. You were born in a certain economic strata, a specific time and a specific place in the world, not 500 years ago or 500 years hence. So, so many aspects of your life seem predecided as to how far you can go outside the lines. And there's this entire philosophy that says it's all accident and it's all freedom. And that seems to be patently false. And yet at the same time, to interpret all of our actions as being like dominoes lined up so that one clicks into the next and there's really no freedom, that also seems to be patently false. And the Bible seems to take the view that there's some truth and some falsity in each of them, right? If there's one will that we know is absolutely free, and if you check, it says this in our creeds and confessions, it is the will of God. He's absolutely free from anything outside himself and the determination of his will. But our wills sometimes seem to be manifestly contoured by this life. We think of this, when we, when we go through these doctrines, we talk about the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the fall, right? If you, how many of you have a dog? We got a dog at home? I've, you know, we were raised with lots of dogs. We're dog people. We had cats too. We had it all. But dogs are different. Because dogs are people. I'm just kidding. But at the same time, if you try to give a dog, say you have a can of fresh cut pineapple, and you have a juicy steak, and you put them both in front of the dog, which one's he probably going to choose? The steak, right? How many times out of 100 will the dog choose the steak? 100 times out of 100. Is there an infinite number of times that the dog will choose the steak instead of the pineapple? He actually will. The dog will never choose the pineapple. I have never heard of a beast, a dog, a lion, a tiger, that will choose the pineapple given the opportunity because it's just not in their nature. And so now we ask the question, well, are they really free since they can't do other than choose the thing that they like best? At the same time, with the fall into sin, what was corrupted is the mind and the heart. So that even if there were the possibility of us freely choosing God and against ourselves and choosing glory instead of sin and choosing goodness instead of lust and power, every time we choose the stake. So we're free and we have a free will, but that free will tends to be expressed in which sin we're going to choose to commit. The idea that we're absolutely free in the sense of moral freedom doesn't seem to be taught by Scripture at all. As we come to this, we get to verse 10 of Ephesians where it says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Now, here's the reason that we read this. We don't want you to think that this is language that we're bringing to the text. We're not really doing theology here. We're just reading. So this language is not something we impose upon the text. There are all kinds of philosophical ideas from the philosophers that people will choose to impose on the text and read the text through as a grid. But if we just read scripture, it says these things in it, and it says them explicitly and not impliedly. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the glory, the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So finally he gets to that secondary aspect of us hearing the gospel and believing it after he has let us know in no unclear terms that these things happen according to his purpose and his will. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 9. Now, there are many different interpretations of these passages, but, you know, uh, for most things in the Bible, even the hardest things, even the things that are mysterious, and even the things that I don't claim to understand, there's going to be a passage in the Bible, or perhaps an exceptionally long passage of the Bible, that's going to distinctly say exactly what happens and how it happens. All we really need to know, to know everything that God has for us to know, is be able to read in English. I know you all know it was originally written in Greek. That's not really the issue. The issue is we have a a faithful translation from the Greek, and at the same time when we read it, it tells us everything that we need to know to understand exactly what happened, even if the mysterious aspects of it are still beyond us. So first I'll read uh, uh, the passage up to uh, where we're going just so we get context, context, context. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing here to explain after after eight chapters why some of the Jews don't believe even though their Messiah has finally come. So again, what he's explaining here is why some people believe and some people don't, even though the Messiah has come. And he's going to ask rhetorical questions, one of which is, has the word of God then failed? And he's going to say, of course, kind of obviously, the word of God did not fail. The problem isn't in the word of God. The problem is in us. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So what he's saying that his physical relatives, the other Jews, he would wish even for himself that he were lost to God if they could all be saved. Now he can't do that, he doesn't have the power to do that, and yet at the same time, haven't we all felt that same kind of pull for those that we love and care about, especially in our families, that we want them to be saved so badly that we would wish ourselves accursed if we could do that for them. And so one of the implied answers to this is, we don't have the power to do it, it's really not up to us. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. But it's not as though the word of God had failed. And, here's, and he explains why. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so one of the difficult things that the Apostle Paul here gives to us is that just being born into Israel does not make you Israel. Just being a descendant of Abraham physically does not make you one spiritually. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but, and then he quotes from Genesis, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
Now, Abraham had two children, right? Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the child that was promised by God, the child of his spirit. Ishmael was the child of his flesh, rejected by God. This means that it is not the children of the flesh that are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac. So Sarah had two sons. Sarah had a son. And he was claimed by God Isaac. Then Isaac married Rebekah. And of course she had twins. And they were both born of the same parents. Just so we don't get an idea in there that there's something particular about being Jewish that gets people saved. But though they were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad. Now we can reason, we understand why the Apostle Paul's writing this. The only reason for him to write this is if we would think to ourselves that it was because one of them or the other had done something good or bad. So he makes sure to disabuse us of this presumption about ourselves that God is attracted to us because we have done something good or bad. He says it was before they were born and before that either one had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election, the same word in our primary text, chose, chosen, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now here's a place where we have to resign our reason to the teaching of the text. Of course, you remember Martin Luther and all the things he used to say about reason, right? Sometimes he seemed to attack reason with a hammer. Sometimes he seemed to build it up into you know, almost an idolatrous status. And the reason why is because he's not against reasoning or clear moral thinking or even logic, but reason by itself doesn't usually come to much truth. Reason, when it's subject to the word of God, that is what edifies and that is what strengthens. So when we use our reason, we can see that there's a reason why he's saying this in the text. He says that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. So he's already called out two different reasons that we might think that one would be saved and the other lost. One is that they had done something good or bad, but he says that's not it. Then because of good works. And he says that's, not, that's also not it. So this idea that God is looking down the corridors of time and he sees people that he likes that do good things and that causes him to choose them, it's being precluded by the text. It is the choice that causes the good works, not the good works that cause the choice. And then, as she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it was written, Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated. So then he knows that we're going to have questions here. And the Apostle Paul doesn't dodge the questions. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And now we get into another theological conundrum, which is, does God choose things because they're good, or are they good because he chooses them? Is something good because God likes it, or does God like it because it's good? Now, I know that's an interesting question, but if God likes things because they're good, then goodness is an external standard to God, which even he has to submit to. But if something being good is good because God has determined it, because God has said, this is good, then God is sovereign over goodness itself. There are different interpretations. 
By no means. In other words, there's no injustice for God. And then he goes to this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God. So even human will, he, he identifies it acutely. He picks it out and he says it does not depend on human will. And I know at this point it pricks our human will and it takes away from us this power we thought we had and this thing that we thought was good in us being our will to determine our destiny. But he says it doesn't, de- it doesn't depend on good works and it doesn't depend on our will. It depends on God who has mercy. In some of this, we see him laying out this also another classic issue of philosophy of, you know, are things good because somebody has the most power or does power have to submit to goodness? Well, in every human endeavor... Power has to submit to goodness. Even the things our government does, it must do what's right and good. But God is all-powerful and all-good. And so if he does it this way, it's our presumption that it's good because he does it. For in Scripture, he says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So I know that in the the theories of the philosophers and in the theologies of the theologians, they have all of their different arguments in which they, they grapple with this cantankerous issue, but we also have the clear teaching of God here that these things are really dependent upon God's will and not our will. And so as we go back, we we say in one sense, do we have free will? Well, in a sense, we do. We choose things. We make our decisions. We think our thoughts. We go about our day. We choose to turn left. We choose to turn right. At the same time, when we come down to that crucial matter of what is the actual cause of a person's regeneration and faith, God reserves that to himself alone. He doesn't give us the slightest fragment of that to our own honor, pride, and glory. He even goes as far here as to say it does not depend on human will or exertion. And this is an explicit and not an implied teaching of Scripture. For this very purpose I raised you up. In verse 19 he says, so you will say to me. (laughs) So he he knows you're going to have a question in regard to that. And he says, you will say to me, why does he then find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, how powerful are you really that you think you could resist the will of God? He called the very stars into being, created the planets, set them into their orbits. Even the ocean sits at his command upon the shoreline. All of the great beasts of the world obey him completely. And do we really think that our will could resist him? And the Apostle Paul is just echoing that, saying, hey, we know no one can resist the decision-making will of God. So why does he still find fault? Well, he gives an answer to that. His answer might not be gratifying to our flesh, but it's gratifying to our spirit. His answer is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, if he were to give us a technical, analytical answer with all the wherefores and the whereabouts of how it all works, maybe we would like that better. But the answer that the Apostle Paul gives is, he's God and you're not. Take joy and happiness in the truthfulness of your own faith and salvation. But as for why God chooses one and does not choose another, that's within the mysterious will of God. It's unsearchable. It's unknowable. The only thing we know, because he's told us in the text, is it's not because one was good 
and the other was bad. You were all bad. And it's not because one had a good will and the other had a bad will. It's by God's will. And so it's not because he loved you because you were more lovable. And that's perhaps the most important teaching of this text. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? And so this is the apostle's answer to this classic conundrum. It doesn't, it doesn't answer every question. Some of them, he seems to just push right back in our face by asking us a better question. But at the same time, in the realm of salvation and the justification of our souls, he is eminently clear in the fact that he wants to make sure this one thing happens, that in our salvation, all glory is given to God and none is reserved for ourselves. And this brings us to a different kind of sanctification, doesn't it? It brings us to a different kind of life in the church, from our life in the church being one in which we feel like we're special people that are more noble creatures than the other, to the fact that we are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And we've been saved by grace, and we've been saved by faith, not of ourselves, but as a gift of God. So now we have joy, and yet none of the corruption that comes from reserving even the slightest little bit of that joy to ourselves in our own pride. So in this, uh, why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we'll sing that song one more time, and then we'll get the benediction. But when we talk about being within the church, one of the most important aspects of having a healthy church is that no one in the church thinks that they're good. Now, I know you guys have been walking in faith a long time. I'm not implying in any way that this is a problem that we have, but it's a problem that the text teaches about. As long as God is good and all of us are saved by grace together, the fellowship that we have will be this kind that he talks about in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. So first he reminds us that we're God's chosen ones. Then he says, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for this time of coming together in your name. We thank you for your word, Lord God, and just pray that as we, as we consume these morsels, these words of yours from Scripture, that you would take away any heart of resistance to your word, Lord God, and just help us to submit to the plain teaching of Scripture with vigor, Lord God, and eagerness to be taught and tempered and tutored by you. And we thank you for these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, in closing, we'll sing just one more time just the, just the benediction itself and the amens.
keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. God look up and receive his blessing not as a prayer but as a proclamation may the Lord your God bless you and keep you may his face shine upon you and give you peace amen